0: What is up, my friends? We got a spectacular show for you today. Our guest is Kevin Van Trump, the founder of Farm Direction and the Van Trump Report, which shares proprietary research for farm investors and agricultural professionals. In today's episode, Kevin walks us through his early career as a trader to now running the hugely popular Van Trump Report. Then we touch on the wild year for the ag commodities and hear Kevin's thoughts on wheat, soybean, corn. He touches on the impact of Chinese demand and the shifts he's seeing in the ag markets over his career. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Long-time listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted, high-quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities, typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invest material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10 East.co. That's the number 10 East.co. Please enjoy this episode with Kevin Van Trump. Kevin, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Well, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller here. Uh for the for the newbies out there, where do we find you today? Uh I'm just south of Kansas City. Down
1: here, uh, my wife and I grew up in a small rural town south of Kansas City. Um so yeah, we're down here just sitting uh we got a lake house out this way and so got some properties in downtown Kansas City, but pretty much since COVID, we've been out here kind of got back to the farm and uh kind of back to uh, the rural lifestyle so
0: yeah man when uh when the zombie apocalypse started here in la when they closed the beaches and the parks which is the most insane thing if you're an la resident to close the beaches uh we were like we got to get out of dodge anyway all right so for the listeners who aren't familiar with you let's get a little origin story background i know you did some time trading in uh chicago i'm more familiar with what everything you're doing now but for the for the newbies who don't know uh kevin uh tell us a little tell us a little your story
1: well i went to work for the nfl when i first got out of college married my high school sweetheart and uh had a good job doing camps combines clinics it was a fun job wasn't a good job wasn't making much money but i was traveling around doing a bunch of cool stuff and uh, that was before any of that was really popular on tv or paid much and uh had a couple offers, one from the Vikings, one from the Dolphins. Um, I always tell people, uh, tell the kids, the assistant to the assistant pulling guard coach, probably. And I remember we looked back at some of the letters we kept them, and I think the original offer was like for eleven thousand, twelve thousand dollars annually, and you know, so making no money, uh, my wife kind of lands her dream job in Chicago, working on Michigan Avenue. She was in the fashion side of things, so we uh, we up and leave rural, you know, rural America out here. Our, our families really didn't have much money. They were blue collar. Both our parents were blue collar workers and just kind of did enough to get by. But, uh, you know, we end up in Chicago, and all my friends in the NFL said, Man, you got to get in the trading business. And I said, Hell, I don't know anything about trading. And you know, I've worked on farms my whole life. Sports guy, went to college, played sports, you know, whole nine yards. And uh, they said, Well, go talk to these people. They give me a couple names to go talk to. They're like, Damn, dude, you're a big, tall guy. I was, I'm about 6'4, probably about 350 at the time. And they're like, you're hired. Everybody will see you. You're easy to get uh, orders off. So, you know, a lot of people will see you and it makes it really easy. So I start over at the Merck. I started off just trading uh, FX current, mostly uh, Swiss francs, D marks, Japanese yen, things like that. Then I started trading live cattle and different things. Moved over to the board, worked for a couple of different firms, traded five year, 10 year notes, treasuries, and, uh, and then started trading corn, beans, and wheat kind of got more into my wheelhouse where I kind of knew the lingo and could come back home and talk to folks and uh, met a lot of really good people in in the industry in Chicago. Uh, A lot of really good people that kind of took me under their wing and taught me a lot of things and uh, helped me probably avoid a lot of mistakes. And uh, I got lucky in in a few things and and made some decent investments and some things not so lucky. You know, I, I, uh, I tell a lot of people, the only reason I'm on stage is hell, I probably made more mistakes than most folks. So I think that's important to, and to try and learn from those things and help pass it along. So, you know, that's really kind of the, the longer, uh, the background and I still communicate and talk with a lot of my friends from the, from the board. And then I came back to Kansas City board trade and work for a while and uh, still talk to a lot of different people inside the industry on both coasts, uh, LA, uh, and, and out into New York and into the Boston area. And so, yeah.
0: How long you been writing and, and publishing the the Van Trump report?
1: Probably about, I would say it's about 12 or 13 years, maybe a touch longer. You know, I, I really just started writing it. I went to a damn uh, oh, a seminar or something and, and some people were kind of challenging uh, the audience to, to do more journaling, personal journaling, to gather my thoughts and bearings a little bit about, I guess, for my sake, it was uh, more what I was doing investment wise, what I was doing trading wise. And then... Like you, I had uh, two young kids at the time. So it was parenting and trading and, you know, relationship. But my wife and I uh, celebrate our 30th uh, wedding anniversary coming up. So it's a lot of, it was just a lot of growing. Hell, we had some ups. We had some downs. I had some businesses go broke. I had, uh, we kind of got caught up in the housing uh, fallout. We were doing, I was backing some people that were doing some, some home building and developing. So I just had a lot of things going on, a lot of balls in the air. So I kind of just started journaling, putting down my own thoughts and, I started to send it out to some of my buddies. Cause they were like, what the hell are you doing? You know, what do you, what do you got going? And the next thing it started circulating back to me and it was coming from guys over at Goldman and Morgan different places. And I'm like, shit. I told my wife, I said, maybe I can charge for this. Thing. Maybe I'll charge for it and see if anybody wants to read it. And everyone's like, ah, nobody's going to want to read about your kids and your theories on life and your position. Hell, it kind of took off. So. You know, it, it wasn't intended. I never planned on writing anything. I mean, it has helped me become a better trader and investor because I have to think through my thoughts a lot more clear and a lot more disciplined. So
0: you touched on a lot of things I'd like to to expand on, but part of it, you know, I I think the letting the personality come out um, lets it be a lot more relatable. I mean, most people are not going to want to read like an investment bank deep dive. Like it's a lot uh, more fun and. You know, humans relate to stories and narratives. So coming from someone who's talking about their failures or their business or their, you know, uh, kids and all the other dumb stuff we do is, uh, I think, a, a great way to go about it. But also, like, one of the things I like is, is looking back, you know, almost as like a diary too, uh, you know, where we're like, hey, what were we talking about? five years ago when XYZ happened or 15 years ago, I remember I said that, man, that was really brilliant or stupid or whatever it might've been. But you do a very in-depth and thoughtful letter. Let's talk about kind of what the world looks like today. Um, We talk uh, a lot about investing on this podcast and have been talking a lot about commodities, real assets, and farmland investing for years. Um, partially because of my background and and partially because I think it's really interesting, but also many and most of the landscape doesn't talk about it. Now, that having been said, Barron's cover story this weekend, uh, which may be a signal, was about farmland investing. (laughs) So I think we come full circle. But talk to me a little bit about the transition, you know, from uh, pit trader to thinking about commodities uh, and and kind of what's your framework? How do you think about them today? And What's your investment kind of process when it comes to thinking about that world?
1: Yeah, so mostly I primarily trade corn, beans, wheat. I trade a lot of energy, different energies. Uh, just I'm invested in ethanol plants, CNG fueling facilities. So a lot of those things uh, feed lots. So a lot of the things in the ingredients that go into some of the businesses that we're invested in from the ag tech world uh, through the energy space I was a trader uh, and traded pretty heavily, you know, through the years. So I've kind of feel like that's, I have somewhat of a maybe a, of an edge or have made enough mistakes that I can keep myself from getting overly crazily tripped up. But uh, I start every day with a macro view and a macro perspective, what's happening globally with the world. You know, we've learned in the last 10, 15, 20 years, I mean, the markets have changed dramatically because you have a lot more fund interest and a lot more cross hedging. And with the cross hedging, You have a lot more bigger players and bigger money players trying to, you know, trying to find ways to circumvent and get a better risk reward ratio. So they may be long, gold, short, crude. They may have different various uh, trading strategies. I remember one year ADM was calling and uh, the wheat market was just racing higher and uh, nobody could really figure out what the hell was happening because we weren't really having a traditional supply and demand story. But we were going into a polar vortex and there was a lot of headlines about a polar vortex uh, hitting in the winter. So I was getting a lot of calls from a few of my hedge fund buddies in Boston and, and out in your way. And they're like, hey, we, you know, we were thinking if this polar vortex hits, that's probably really going to disrupt first quarter earnings because it's going to have half of, you know, half the East Coast all hunkered down. And, you know, how can we hedge? because we are just coming off big gains in the market. And it's like, how can we hedge some of this? They wanted to get long the wheat market because they figured the wheat market was the most sensitive to a polar vortex. You know, you get a, a massive, uh, you know, some type of winter kill on the wheat crop. The wheat crop's going to pop and take off to the upside. So there was a lot of fun money coming in, buying the soft red winter wheat contracts to try and cross hedge into an equity portfolio. And it was just crazy. It was it was baffling some of the bigger players in the space because they had not seen that in the past. And, and we're seeing a lot more of that now, whether it's into natural gas, whatever market it may be, you're seeing more cross hedging, more interesting trades, the spreads that used to be traditional spread uh, type plays aren't traditional anymore. You can kind of get in trouble when you look at back history and think, wow, this shouldn't do this, or this should do that. Uh, just just a lot more high frequency trading, a lot more algorithmic trading, and that's changed some of the space a little bit. So,
0: If you were to characterize kind of your approach, is it mostly Fundamental and sort of discretionary is it you involve technical sort of you know inputs?
1: I started off you know I I started off kind of trading fundamentally then I scrapped that when I was young and became a technical guru and how uh, DeMark was traded at a Tom DeMark was at a place right there. I was Larry Williams broker for a, for a couple of years and uh, I had put in trades for Larry for for a while. So I mean I had become very well versed in the technical side and started trading technically. Hell, I didn't have great success with that either. So it became more of a a blend. I would say mostly uh, fundamentally driven with some, with technical analysis, certainly being used as a tool for entry, exit points, overall trend, uh, things of that nature. So yeah, more, mostly a blend and really mostly anymore what, what money flows doing with the funds. I mean, what's their appetite and what's, you know, you can be as right as a day is long, but the ultimately you gotta be right the market, you know? So
0: Yeah. I figured we start with wheat, as that's probably closest to uh, my heart. We did a podcast recently with um, an author who just put out a book called "Oceans of Grain," which is kind of about um, a Professor at Georgia, that kind of how how wheat has helped shape civilization and economic um, growth all around the globe, which is pretty fun. But you know, wheat for many years of this past decade hasn't been doing a whole lot, and then you know what is it? starting kind of post-pandemic time, started inching up and then just kind of went bananas uh, in the past, uh, past year. Give us a little perspective. What does it look like now? Uh, what was this experience of the past year uh, going on and uh, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, we raced higher, obviously, off the uh, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine and that really kind of added fuel to the fire and took us to some highs we haven't seen in, in many, many years. A couple of the weekend contracts posted all-time highs. So you really had some some big fund interest and some big fund movement, and but in the last few months you've had the funds kind of back off their appetite for commodities, just in essence, uh, or really because they think that uh, we're going to have fear of a global recession. So some type of you know walking back their appetite for commodities has really kind of put the hammer on some of the the grain markets, especially wheat. We're having we're struggling as a country to export uh, our exports. We've become what we call in our business, we've become the ancillary supplier of wheat. People want to go to Costco and Walmart first, which in this case is Russia, the Black Sea, and uh, parts of Europe. So they look to get cheap wheat from those sources. And if they can't get that and they need to absolutely secure delivery, they tend to then come to the U.S. For, as an ancillary supplier. So we've lost a great deal of market share in the world uh, as a wheat exporter. And the strength of the U.S. dollar has become a headwind as of late. And so exports haven't been all that great we would like to believe exports are going to improve as we move forward, but there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, you know, this humanitarian grain corridor, the so-called humanitarian grain corridors coming out of Ukraine, how much are they actually going to get exported? We believe it's not very much, but the, uh, the headline traders and the algorithmic uh, computer models, you know, that it's weighing fairly heavily. And uh, a lot of the bulls have exited from the fund side. They're on the sideline. You got a little bit more short interest in play out from the funds and you know, they are tending to use it as a cross hedge for global, uh, being short as, as a global recession hedge. So
0: what's when, when you kind of trade at this point in your career, to the extent you are, is it, um, traditionally through direct futures, or are you trading options or are you trading underlying equities? Like how do you traditionally go about the, uh, expression of a trade?
1: Yeah. So I use, I just trade straight futures, probably 80, 90% of the time I will trade options, uh, on futures. I, you know, I'm long, some, uh, out of the money corn calls at the moment, just they got beaten up pretty severely. I should say in the last few years with Robinhood and some of these other platforms that have gotten more of the younger kids involved, you know, there are just some extreme swings and options there. There is some definite opportunity with the ball and the volatility that's uh, out there. If you're paying attention, I mean, some of them really get beaten up. You know, they just get overdone to one side or the other. And uh, so there, there are definitely some opportunities for option players. So.
0: What's the kind of the rest of the ag space that you're looking at? Corn, beans. Is it kind of a story of more of the same with wheat? Are there big differences? Uh, tell us tell us what you're saying.
1: You know, you have a little bit more of a demand story. If you go to the bean side of things, you know, we raced higher in the last couple of weeks. And then we've given most of that back here as of late. But the bean story is. The world's going to need, and there's really no replacement for the higher protein beans. So you, you, you grow soybeans, you send that to a processing plant, they crush that for meal and bean oil. Notoriously, meal, years past, meal was always the leader of a bull run because the oil was kind of thought of as a byproduct, right? So uh, you use the meal to feed uh, pigs and poultry, the livestock, and there's really no replacement for the high protein. Corn, when corn prices get super high, they'll start to you know substitute wheat in and wheat will come in. But, but as far as meal, there's really not a big substitute. So the world needs the meal to, to feed the livestock. We're going to continue to see, we believe, increasing high protein demand uh, from the livestock side. But now all of a sudden, you're getting a big push for oil uh, from the cooking side and from the biofuel side. So you're gonna, you've got a big, big onslaught of money coming into the U.S. or being moved uh, by investors here in the U.S., to create more, uh, crush facilities or more facilities to create more biofuel, aviation fuel, things of that nature. So we think we're going to see quite a few, uh, more soybean processing facilities open up. We think you're with that, you're going to see a bigger increase in the number of acres for soybeans are probably going to be converted, uh, more planting of soybeans as we move forward. Hopefully, um, you know, supply, this is always tricky in these commodity markets because, hell, you get, you get a big story about demand. Next thing you know, you planted too many acres, so supply outweighs demand. Then you kind of try and rebalance and see how it shakes out. But, you know, we suspect over the next five years, you're going to see a pretty good increase in the number of soybean acres because of the fact we're going to build out quite a few of these new uh, crush facilities and these new facilities to produce more things with beans. The bean story is good. It's got a good demand story. Corn is a little more tricky weather-wise. I think corn, you know, right here, you're in a little bit of a weather market. We're just past pollination period. But corn's a little more difficult to grow. So worldwide, wheat's the easiest to grow. So most people start off and grow wheat, whether it's in Ukraine, Russia, the ground facilitates wheat growth. Next is probably uh, you come into rice or beans and things of that nature. And then corn's a little bit more difficult to grow, a little more sensitive, got a little more issues. uh, Some things can happen. Timing of the weather is pretty important. So, you know, we've got a great story. Weather is obviously going to impact the corn crop, uh, both here and in South America, a great deal. And Chinese demand, I guess, remains the big question mark on both uh, and uh, the war in Ukraine. You know, Ukraine's a a major exporter of corn, fourth largest in the world behind uh, Brazil and Argentina and ourselves. And you know how that plays out is going to be a big question. So that and Chinese demand are kind of the driving factor.
0: Yeah, you're you're one of my favorite follows on Twitter for the ag charts. So listeners, uh, you can uh, you can click the show note links and, and follow on Kevin on Twitter because he, he produces a lot of great charts on uh, on the ag world. While we're here, China, you know, has been such a major impact on all things commodity related for the past decade you know it's it's hard i think for a lot of investors to disentangle kind of what's going on versus the headlines and, and what's really kind of their influence is where do we stand today is it something that you know the the whole covid experience and the lockdowns has been impacting their kind of insatiable demand for commodities or what what's what's the what's the updates there
1: Well, a couple of years, well, a few years back, probably when President Trump was elected early on, we had gotten some intel or insight from some of our sources in Washington that there was there were a couple of different papers going around and different things that, you know, that China is taking and swinging a little differently and taking a different approach uh, towards the West. Uh, We had when people had landed from the government that regularly they would be taken to certain places in China. You're kind of taken to see what you're supposed to see and, you know, and how things are supposed to look on your tours and what you can report, and what you can't report. Uh, It was the first time ever that we'd gotten back uh, Intel that they're trying to pivot away from a Western diet. Uh, There, there was a big push a long time. Uh, They were becoming more Westernized. Uh, I'd probably say four or five years ago, we start getting intel, but that that's a big shift from the, you know, the highest level of the Chinese government. They want to shift away from Western type society or Western diets, things of that nature. That makes us a little concerned, a little worried, you know, have we peaked to some degree the demand side of things? Are they going to walk back some of this protein production that we thought was going to be in play? We thought there was going to be a bigger push for cattle, uh, beef, livestock, things of that nature. I'm not so sure of that anymore. They may be walking that back to some degree. They seem to have a, a lot bigger chip on their shoulder about the West, hell as we've seen this week with the Pelosi uh, landing in Taiwan and, and some of the other things. So Chinese demand is worrisome. We definitely believe they're trying to do more deals with South America. They want to try and you know push their Belt Road uh, objective. They want to try and Obviously, they want to try and knock the the U.S. dollar out as the uh, world's global leading currency. I think that Russia and China are both, you know, somewhat in cahoots to try to make that play. It's understandable why. Uh, I think that's going to be that's going to be some major contention moving forward over the next many years. Uh, is you know, will they get the dollar out of that position? Will they not? I'm not really sure, but it is worrisome, uh, you know, from our point of view or from our perspective. So yeah, there's a lot of moving parts inside China politically that uh, have changed over the last four to five years, which uh, make things a lot more interesting.
0: As you think about the dollar, you know, um, certainly the last year we do a, a a lot of polls on Twitter, and one of them was you know asking investors, do you invest in real assets at all in any form? So we were talking commodities, we're talking um, real estate, you know, REITs. I said ignore your house, but just real assets elsewhere, even tips. I put in this category, and the vast majority had very little in in commodities, and and I often highlight and asterisk this and say my my Canadian and Australian friends are probably the exception because they tend to be very natural resource focused but the last year and particularly this year with stock and bond markets i feel like has brought that discussion back to the forefront you know high inflation and um, certainly for the first four sort of months of the year commodities were just going bananas most of them some were not precious metals notoriously have lagged but how much of a role does kind of the big picture monetary, uh, you know, kind of play in your world, you know, thinking about inflation, thinking about the US dollar, which I think was a surprise to many with the dollar ripping and then commodities also at the same time. Is that something you spend a lot of time thinking about a little bit factor in? Not so much.
1: Sure. You know, I've learned many, many times, uh, many valuable, lead. don't fight the Fed. You know, you really want to try and be on the same side as the home team as far as what the government's trying to do or what the, the powers that be in the world are trying to do. So I think you definitely have to start off. That's what I said, start off every day, trying to get a better understanding of the macro perspective. What, what's, you know, what do we think of the dollar here? What do we think about rates, interest rates, long-term debt, where are we going to go and where's money going to flow? I mean, you just really have to follow the money. Where's money going to flow and where's it trying to move to next? And, and that's really the name of the game. So, you know, yeah, definitely think about it uh, religiously
0: as you've kind of talked to investors and been sending out this, uh, email over the years, give us a sentiment check on, uh, kind of the responses and feedback you're getting this year versus years past, or just even over the entirety. I mean, I, I, think, um, for me personally, you know, being involved in sort of the institutional investing world for a while, you kind of see the ebbs and flows of sentiment, you know, commodities in that part of the world uh, got a ton of interest in the early part of the 2000s, you know, post um, sort of internet bubble. And then, you know, all these big institutions were moving in and indexing and allocations to futures as an asset class. And then they kind of seemingly lost interest somewhat over a number of years and then farmland has kind of you know at different periods as well as timber and all that sort of what's been the vibe from your readership and kind of people you interact with over uh you know the past number of years well the
1: vibe pretty much as i see overall i argue this with everyone um i guess it depends what your objective is you know um my objective wasn't to do this to make any money my objective was just to do this to put my own thoughts down and try and figure out what the hell I was doing and how to try to become a better trader. And like I said, a better parent, better father, better, you know, uh, husband, all the night, all those things. So I really wasn't doing it to ever make money. I really never had any advertisers, didn't have anyone advertise, didn't take any advertising money. So I did you know, I just, I have a different play. I think the vibe is doom and gloom sells. I mean, people that push doom and gloom make a shitload of money and uh, people want to hear it. They want to hear conspiracy theories. They want to hear doom and gloom. They want to hear the world's ending dollars going to go out of place and buy shotguns, canned goods and gold. And uh, you know, that's, that's, that sells. It really does sell. And a lot of my readers, I'll get newslet- I'll get uh, responses all the time like, you know, my gosh, why are you so optimistic? Why are you so po-? And they still subscribe and they still take it, but they would rather hear me be doom and gloom and, uh, you know, like the sky is falling and, and kind of jump on board the bandwagons of the uh, conspiracy theorists. And I just never have. I've never been one of those people, so I, I don't. I got off a call yesterday, some uh, friends of mine, a couple of billionaire investors, and they wanted me to be on a call with a guy. I mean, and he was talking, the dollar's done, this is done, and that's the dollars gone, and all the all the crazy conspiracies that you could think of. And, you know, and I – it's entertaining. I mean, it definitely gets your attention, and I'm not saying that maybe one day they won't be right, but uh, I just don't think we're going to roll over here in the United States and just play dead and fall to pieces all in one fail shot here. So, I – I'm not a big believer, a fan of it. You ask me what the vibe is. I think the vibe is notoriously people want to be bearish. They want to think the sky is falling. I think the more and more social media continues to push and separate all of us, you know, into our own little lanes and channels. I tell everyone, I mean, it's, it's, we didn't have very many threads or fabrics of threads that kept us all together to begin with. I mean, there's only you know, a few threads that keep us together as a nation. And it's uh, the algorithms, unfortunately, define us by what we're against, not what we believe in together, collectively, you, you know, anything you click and it, it, the algorithms are going to define you by your clicks and what you like or what you hover over or how many seconds. And, and, you know, sadly, we, we're all being put into these little boxes about what we're kind of against. So everyone, you know, has these 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 issues now and uh i i think it's going to be tricky but that's the whole damn marketplace so
0: when we see you start to get really negative uh then we're going to start to run for the hills we'll we'll know that'll be the 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 armageddon um you know as someone who's been a long-time observer of kind of commodity and ag markets talk to me a little bit about the changes you've seen And and part of this question to me is as a more casual observer is um, partially the role technology is playing, and so inflation is is not just one thing; it's a lot of different things. Some areas are disinflationary or outright deflationary. Some areas are highly inflationary. Um, but to me, always, you know, I'm I'm an optimist, like you are. I may not come across that way, but I'm an optimist. And and technology to me, um, and the relentless human progress, but particularly with applied to the ag and, and commodity space. What are you seeing? Um, is it an area that, you know, is is kind of incremental or all of a sudden it's like leaps and bounds in your world? Is it something you invest in in any way? Give us an overview.
1: Yeah. So we're, uh, my family, our family, my, my wife and our kids, we're kind of angel investors in a lot of ag tech startups. We uh, were kind of founding group with iSelect. iSelect does a lot of ag tech uh, investing from a startup perspective. And we, uh, we were founding in there and kind of put money up with them and, and various different ones. Like I said, Acre Trader, now Acre Pro and Vincent Hill. There are many different ones that we've invested in through the years. So now I see, I see a big future in ag tech and uh, in, in some of the ag tech startups. It's probably, I would say, more incremental. I, I think you got to start, you know, we used to always start in our investing thesis with the demographics. And I think you look here at demographics, if you want to go back to the boomers who were the, probably the most influential, what they created, uh, you know, whether it was big box stores or the fast foods. Now you look at the millennials, they don't want fast foods necessarily. They're more into knowing where their food comes from. Uh, higher end type foods, your Chipotle, your different types of things. Yes, they will pay $8 for a car- Starbucks coffee or $9. They don't have to have a you know 50 cent coffee. And that, yes, they will pay $10 for a burrito a- at Chipotle and they will spend less on something else. Their spending habits are much different. Food is very important to the millennials. So we see this as a big shift in agriculture. In agriculture, for years, it used to be the farmer or the producer grew whatever the hell they wanted to grow, and you, the consumer, picked from what they grew. Now, that's changing dramatically. So now, the consumer is pretty much dictating what's going to be grown, how it's going to be grown, what chemicals they want on it, what chemicals they don't want on it. We suspect as blockchain becomes more and more prevalent, you're going to see blockchain come across the farms. And- you're going to know exactly what's in your crop. What uh, You're going to know what chemicals are put in it, where, where it's been. It, w- the reason they want a blockchain, it simply is simply you, this. You can remember back when Chipotle had the issue and they were getting the breakout of the E. coli. Well, shit, they want to know exactly what farm it came out of, what field, what row, and who was picking it. They want to know to a ass kind of where that came from, and they want to know it immediately so they can get the problem stopped and solved quickly. So... Uh, like Galen Lawrence is one of our, uh, one of our friends that uh, does a lot of business. We do some business with them, that Galen owns probably more row crop acreage than anyone in the United States. And uh, they put in a new cotton gin. And so like Patagonia, some of the other people that sell the co- concert teas and things like that, it's kind of, well, the kids want to know where the cotton came from and what farm and, you know, kind of what was on They like to have a story behind it. And We're seeing that more and more. So they already are are tagging and uh, blockchaining a lot of their cotton that goes through the mills. We're seeing that with rice now. A lot of the rice is kind of getting blockchain. Chipotle only wants to buy A couple of our customers supply the majority of the rice for Chipotle. And they only want certain, and understandable, they want certain things. Benson Hill, uh, another great example. So Benson Hill started, they were going to be like the, Amazon World Services, but for the seed industry, they, they had a bunch of scientists that they've taken out of uh, and gotten from other companies that are some of the best scientists, and they use CRISPR technology to, to create their own seeds. Now, impossible beyond those people contract with Benson to create a specific seed that is the right variety for their food right calories, right taste, the right palate texture. And so then Benson is able to use their their team and they use crisp potato, create the right bean. Then we find a grower uh, and help them find growers that can grow that bean specifically for that end user. See, it never used to be that way. I mean, the farmer would just grow whatever and the end user just kind of is left to pick what they want. And now you're seeing the actual end user, the producer really kind of, uh, kind of tell you what they want and how they want it and they're contracting with farmers to produce it, a greenhouses, a vertical farms, uh, farms in the cities, you know, in some of these vertical areas. And yeah, it's becoming very, very interesting. So we think there's gonna be a big evolution, a shift and change.
0: So, you know, as you talk to investors, let's say not farmers who've been in this world, but but people who say, look, I got a US sixty forty portfolio. I, I'm interested in getting exposure to your world um i imagine you're getting more of those inquiries now than maybe a few years ago but but what do you what do you kind of say to these people um is there a typical response or advice or how to kind of think and approach this entire ecosystem of commodities farming investing ag tech all this stuff Is it just read my letter every day and get to get up to speed or what's the how do you talk to them
1: yeah, our family, we just kind of pivoted and opened up our own, uh, we opened up Van Trump Farm and Land because we have seen more and more interest. Uh, like you said, we partnered with Carter over at Acre Trader. And so, yeah, so we partnered up with Carter. I think the press release will come out in a month or two or something. But my wife and I, we've been in the real estate business our whole lives, the majority of our adult life, I should say, building, developing, and buying and selling real estate through our own family funds and trusts. But we decided I wanted to pivot and get more specific into the farmland side because we are seeing a lot of inquiries, questions from a lot of a lot of people from L.A., a lot of people from other parts of the country. We kind of break it down into three groups. I, I say people are interested in what I call legacy land. That's where they want to buy. They want to take in their money, put it into an investment in land and keep it in maybe a perpetual trust that never leaves the family. I had a friend one time, uh, he was a lawyer, and this is a, this is a cool idea. He had a client that they had about 500 acres, and him and his wife would go out and plant about 50, 40 to 50 acres a year in black walnuts. And this was the family's inheritance, and the kids inherited like 500 acres of black walnuts. I mean, it's worth millions of dollars. And they would give, you know, each uh, I think it were two daughters and a brother and each one of them got a certain section. And, you know, and it, you know, if you go cut down the tree or you can harvest the walnuts each year and sell the black walnuts, so you could cut down the tree and sell the walnut wood for uh, quite a substantial amount of money. It, it, the rule and the trust was to replant the trees and you're doing good things. So we call those legacy type plays. And we have friends, uh, wealthier friends that like to buy farms or working a or, or farm to bring the family back. Either the family comes back at harvest once a year, they come back at planting. But it kind of just brings the family back together as the kids go off and they have grandkids and kids. So uh, we look at things as a legacy type of play. Uh, we have others uh, that are interested in working farms. Uh, so we've had several investor friends that, that really just want to own working farms that are going corn, beans, wheat. Uh, some of the farms have turned into solar farms. Uh, they're getting big lease money for solar uh, wind energy, things of that nature. So some are just looking to diversify into working farm. And then we have others that the third category that we call it is a type of an ag business. We've had some people come in and turn a farm into a whiskey farm. And so now they're growing corn to produce whiskey and they're growing all kinds of different varieties of corn from around the world. They got these cool copper vats. It's about an hour outside of Chicago, the one that uh, we're friends with and people, buses show up out there and they're making more off selling swag and merch and tours of the farm and tours of the whiskey operation is pretty cool. We've got others that have turned some farms into tulip farms or places to take the kids and, you know, bed and breakfast type plays or things. But yeah, so those are you know kind of the three things that we're looking at. So yeah, those are alternative ways that uh, people can get actually physically invested in the ag world. Uh, the others would be on the board through investment type plays through ETFs, through futures, options, things of that nature. So,
0: yeah, you know, one of the things that the the Barron's article highlighted, which we've talked about for a long time, is that as a percentage of the global public portfolio. So, if you want to go out and buy all the public assets, stocks, bonds, etc., one of the biggest missing pieces has always been farmland. It's really hard to get exposure through public securities um, the way that you would through individual. Or grouped farmland, actual uh, properties or funds, because it's owned so much by um, individuals and in groups. But I think that's that's changing, uh, you know, more recently. But you know, people are seeing it's a it's really a great asset class that often doesn't correlate, um, you know, much to anything else in in the world.
1: Yeah, a lot of the funds that so we advise a lot of funds that call it, want to buy farm ground and the play is just simply this. The look is, you know, 30 years from now, is the ground going to be worth more than it is today? Probably. And along the lines of that 30 years, you're going to clip some coupons. Occasionally on years you have highly profitable yields or, you know, some years you might not clip a coupon, some years you may. So, you know, but over the course of time and the longevity of it, yeah, safe, probably longer term investment.
0: The challenge, listeners, on the operational side, uh, you know, do not uh, ignore the pain in the ass uh, aspect, uh, especially going in, um, you know, with no experience. It's not like a, a turnkey. There's a lot of romance when it comes to uh, farming, I think, and 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 being on a uh, this idyllic. Uh, get back to the land, particularly during the pandemic that I think a lot of people had, and then you realize the actual day to day is is a little more work than most uh a little more bugs maybe for some a little more critters uh but um very rewarding i I love it as well on the institutional side it is um you know we see the headlines over the past year we see hey Bill Gates is big into farmland um it seems to kind of go in cycles is is this an area? That you think is is kind of is it increasing interest from the big from the big dudes as well. Um, is it kind of across the board? And 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 feel free to answer this as part of this. Like how much of this is outside of our borders? You know, I mean, it's obviously a global market, but um, farmland investing—you can probably buy ground a lot cheaper in Argentina or you know other places than in Illinois. How are the institutions thinking about this? And, and are people looking abroad as well with the dollar up so much?
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, my, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we own farms in South America through parts, some partners with, uh, some groups, our friends, I should say in farms in Brazil and i own a little bit in Argentina and different things of that nature, but massive learning curves, massive, <laughs> looked great on paper, looked wonderful in theory. And in practice, not so wonderful. And I tell everyone that's the case with, with probably lots of things. I say, you know, uh, whether it's golf, uh, sports, or, or investing, or farming. We go into it at the beginning thinking that it's mostly science. But, you know, but there's a lot of art involved on the farm. So we, uh, we formed a group of farmers uh, that we went in and bought some ground in Brazil, for example. Uh, we were about two hours out of Terracina and up by the... Uh, mouth of the amazon there you were getting about 70 inches of rainfall annually we're hell out in kansas in the parts you were talking about you're getting 12 13 inches of annual rainfall so the play was we bought the land originally we we're going to grow eucalyptus trees on the land uh, you know the eucalyptus tree will grow about 50 60 feet in the air and you do it seven different times seven different cycles well we start to look more at it from a farming side because of all the rainfall like man this is going to be great we'll Start off, we'll grow rice, we'll grow wheat and get the soil right, clear the fields. Hell, you know, great in theory, but in practice, it it was just not great. We had supposed engineers come in, uh, had to put in fields, like pioneering, had to put in roads. Well, we get back there uh, a month or two after they put the roads in. We're like, this shit, this isn't going to work. And the engineer, what do you mean? It's like there was no peak to the roads. Things that we take for granted here, they did not have the roads crowned at all. The roads were just super flat. And no ditches. So it's like the water is just going to pool up in the road. It's like, no, no, this cannot be possible. And things we take granted like uh, roll, rolling up fence line or pulling up fence line from where they had. I mean, it would take these people weeks and weeks or it'd take our boys here like days to do it. So, you know, I, I think things we take for granted. We thought two plus two is four and it was going to be easy and there was going to be a science to it. We forget the art side of it, just like you mentioned. Uh, There's a whole lot of art that goes into making things successful. So we've had no luck. I've never been on the winning side of farms in other countries. And very few of my friends have either, Uh, whether it was in parts of Ukraine uh, because there were some crazy stories with the Russians involved there. There's South America. It's tough. Uh, You know, so yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to put any more money outside the U S when it comes to farming and agriculture, just because there's so much more art involved in this equation than many people want to give it credit. So do I see more uh, big money coming into the space? Yeah, definitely. I think big money is, sees the writing on the wall. You see fragmentation. It's a highly fragmented area or pool. Uh, no different than say Sam Walton back in the day with five and dimes, you know, so wherever you have fragmentation and high fragmentation and high, high profit margins at times, there is opportunity and, you know, private equity and uh, institutional money sniffs that out. And really you probably don't have any greater fragmentation than you do in the ag world at this, at this time. I mean, owned by lots of mom and pops, you know, a lot of mom and pops, you got a big wave of technology coming on a lot of mom and pops that aren't real open to changing or learning new technology in new ways my out, you know, there's a lot of roll-ups taking place. There's a lot of consolidation taking place and bigger money's coming in to, to make that play. I know rural America is kind of bucking at that a little bit. Uh, I should say maybe a lot in some places, but it's, it's kind of the nature of every business, you know, every business industry we've ever seen. It's, it, it kind of takes the same evolution. And uh, at the end, you start to get this big consolidation. period. So I suspect Gates, you know, I think he's correct in some of his thinking. So,
0: Yeah. What have uh, you learned or changed your mind about, or, you know, as, as you talk to investors getting into this space, kind of common mistakes, you know, the one that I always talk about when it comes to angel investing or really any sort of investing is people, I always say, you know, Hey, um, baby steps, right? Like you don't have to cannonball into the pool with all your money on day one and put, uh, all your chips on a single bet, but particularly when it comes to your world, are there some mistakes that you think are easily avoided or that are common um, for, for new entrants? Yeah, you know, I think it's,
1: uh, I think similar to like Kevin O'Leary puts it. I love his analogy when we've talked at a couple of different conferences. You know, how, you got to ask yourself first and foremost, how quickly do I need these troops to come back home? If your dollars are troops, I mean, how quickly, how many am I going to send out in this battle? And how quickly are they going to come back home? And are they going to come back home missing arms and legs? And, you know, is it going to just be a, a horrific story? So, I, you know, for me, I think that's kind of the big magic question when it comes to the farming side or investing in farmland. You know, if you're doing it for a family, your family purposes and to keep your family together long, long, long term and to keep the um, farmland itself in the type of perpetual trust. You know, it really—you're not that worried about that. You're doing it more for uh, other things now. If you're trying to really show consistent annualized returns uh, on a quicker time scale, you know that's probably going to be a lot more difficult in the farm space because there's so many unknowns that can happen year in year out. You're out in California, and you 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 go buy an almond farm, and the next thing you're battling fires that are all over and all around your farm. I mean, you're going to have some issues. You're going to have different things happen. You buy a farm in Kansas or Nebraska where you can't drill for water anymore and you get a massive drought sweeps through you're going to have some issues. There's just a pretty substantial and sizable learning curve to a real working farm. If you're trying to get in there, make money in the next year, two years, three years, you know, I think that's probably, that's that's probably a fallacy to some degree.
0: As you look back on your career trading, there's been a lot of trades. I imagine, uh, we always end with this question. Um, What's been your most memorable investment? Good, bad, in between, but just the one that sticks out in your brain?
1: I try to discard, you know, I I really try not to sear them into my brain too much. I think I was reading, uh, we were talking to a psychologist, a trading psychologist, and they were interviewing and did a study on a bunch of the top traders. And they said, man, it's weird that the top traders usually like to play golf or poker. And they said, they're they're thinking it's because the best golfers forget about the last hole. You know, that. if you play golf and, and worry about that last hole where you just made an eight or something and yeah, then the rest of the round starts to whine same way type in poker you gotta forget about the last thing you know we try to forget about the last trade and i try not to think about the good ones and try not to think about the really bad ones and just learn from the experience but you know we were early in tesla for the right reasons we were wasn't super early in bitcoin but we were fairly early in bitcoin kind of just on the momentum play and it's been good. It was good. Uh, more, you know, those are the more recent ones, I guess, that stick, um, certainly have been wrong. Uh, you know, I hate more than anything, turning a when you got a nice winning trade and you allow it to turn back into a loser. That's frustrating as hell. I was on a call last night talking about that and just, you know, that, that's one that really starts, it eats away at you psychologically. And in trading, it's all it is. I mean, trading is just a psychological game. I mean, if everyone was doing the exact same thing or if there was a technical system that worked or if everyone was lined on the same side, it's really not. We always said, so we would hire prop traders in Chicago and, you know, prop traders, just everybody had a different philosophy and different theory. And some of the best of the best, uh, we had some kids that didn't even graduate high school, just had GEDs and they printed money for years and uh, they were just, Super good uh from a psychological standpoint. Once you put the position on. It's like we say you can pick any market, put the position on. It's how you manage it from there. I mean, any dummy can manage a winning hand, it's how you manage the losers that's so really gonna ultimately decide your fate and as an investor. So
0: I think your comment about the losing trades, my favorite quote of the last few years was via Mark Yusko. And I can't remember who the or- originator was, but it's every trade makes you richer or wiser, but never both. And so thinking about those losing trades and how they impact your learning curve, I think is is useful in that way. I recently had um, an angel investment that had done really well. It was, a, it was a former podcast alum, was the founder of the company. and And, and it was like a 15x outcome when they were acquired, uh, which is awesome. But the problem was, of course, of the last year, everyone can relate, like the acquiring company was a public one and their stock went down a bunch. So by the time the lockup expired, it was still like a three or four bagger, which is amazing, but it wasn't a 15 bagger anymore. So the, the mental accounting, the anchoring, right, is like if you told me ahead of time, would you be happy with tripling, quadrupling your money? You'd be like, oh my God, absolutely, like amazing outcome. But relative to where it was, it's like you actually see how much you lost. So um, funny, just the, the way to think about it. But a couple more real quick ones before we go. What's FarmCon?
1: Oh, yeah. FarmCon's is our annual event. So we started off, oh, 15 years ago. Group of traders, myself, a few old friends, uh, just came to Kansas City shoot shit really it was the reason just get together and drink some beers with small buddies. And we would tell each other our favorite trades, favorite investments for the upcoming year, what we were most heavily invested in. And so then some guys started saying, Hey, can I invite this friend? I invite this friend hey, and this friend. And the next thing we started to develop a lot bigger group. My wife was putting it on for us, kind of, you know, throwing it in handling the catering and the different things and shit about four years ago, I think it turned into over a 1, thousand, 1200 people or something were showing up. People coming from all different parts. Uh, we had people from, you know, different countries showing up and different things like that. So it's an event. It's we called it, then we changed the name to FarmCon. Um, uh, just kind of spent on Comic Con or something of that nature. But mostly it's really just uh there's everyone there from uh, there's several billionaires in the room to there's some guys there who've been there in bib overalls before that just own huge plots of ground. And so we kind of just talk and uh have brainstorming sessions about, you know, what we see coming up, where we're going to go with things. We had a lot of, uh, we had some crypto guys there last year, a lot of younger kids that were in the crypto space kind of briefing us old men. Uh, we, we like to call it now old bears and young bulls, right? So when we were in our twenties and thirties, hell man, we were all fired up and we were bullish everything. You remember the dot com, but now my older friends, all of us that are 50 and older, we're bearish as hell. We think the whole world's coming to an end and, all these crazy investments we're all bearish on so you know but it's just because we don't know we don't understand a lot of the thing we don't understand the lingo we we don't know a lot so that's at FarmCon. we use that as a gathering we have guest speakers come in we've had some great speakers in the past people try and challenge our thoughts and perspectives and and you know help keep us on our toes a little bit
0: so it looks like it's january 4th 5th um, more importantly, listeners, the Broncos are playing the Chiefs, I believe, on New Year's Day, which, for the past five years, I would have said, uh, is a meaningless game for the Broncos at that point, after they have, I don't know, eight to ten losses. However, I'm optimistic, so if they're in the hunt, uh, maybe we can get a, a Broncos to FarmCon, uh, trip going kevin this has been a blast uh what's the best website place to go to find out um what's uh, you're writing and get people to subscribe what you're up to hear your thoughts
1: yeah it's the uh vantrumpreport.com just vantrumpreport.com you sign up 30 day free trial we don't ask for any credit cards or anything like that if you like it you want it keep on keep on uh keep on getting it and if not you know hey i understand and i appreciate the opportunity for the time so.
0: awesome kevin thanks so much for joining us today I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You have a good one. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe the show anywhere. Good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening friends and good investing.